you ever been in a situation where the timing just seemed terrible? <laughs> as neurotic as I am about planning out every detail of my life, I must confess from time to time I have been caught sort of off guard. Um, Melinda and I were married in July of 1977, and after our honeymoon, we moved to Wilmore, Kentucky, uh, for me to follow, uh, finish up my, um, my seminary training. Melinda got a great job working in Frankfurt, which wasn't too far away as a speech therapist, so that she could support us until I uh, graduated. I mean, everything seemed perfect, just as I had planned. Until January, and then my wife began to develop these flu-like symptoms, and we couldn't figure out what it was. Finally, she went to the doctor, and they did some tests, and a couple of days later, we got a call from the doctor's office that we were expecting. <laughs> I remember we turned and laughed at each other <laughs> and said, this timing is awful. <laughs> but what a wonderful gift <laughs> in the end. Today we begin the season of Advent, and we're joining millions of Christians around the world as we begin this, this journey towards the celebration of the incarnation of the Son of Man, Son of God. Now this Advent, the word means coming, and it is both a celebration of the first coming of Jesus while also anticipating His second coming. And we've just finished three, three weeks talking about uh, the second coming. Today, we start a four-week series on the first coming, and we're using an Advent hymn, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, uh, to help us. It's one of my favorite Advent hymns. I mean, I always look forward to singing it on the first Sunday of Advent. And, and perhaps it is sung by uh, almost every United Methodist Church in the world on this day. It was written in 1744 by Charles Wesley, one of the founders of the Methodist movement, the other being uh, John Wesley, his older brother. And while John was the leader and the preacher of the movement, uh, Charles was the poet and the songwriter. Uh, he wrote close to some 5,000 hymns. And because of that, Methodists have always been known as singing people. And if you listen to the words of our hymns, you can learn so much about the Christian faith. And so using this hymn during Advent, we're going to explore why Jesus came. And today we begin with the first part of that line, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And what we'll learn is that Jesus' coming was no accident. That it was in the mind of God since the beginning. That God had a plan. Now, of all the texts in the New Testament that talk about the coming of, of Jesus, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, is one of the best. In just two verses, the Apostle Paul provides a, a summary of this great biblical truth. And here is what he writes. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God 
sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, and the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are His child, God has also made you an heir. When the time had fully come. Doesn't always feel like God has a plan, does it? Sometimes the world feels chaotic and out of control, kind of like 2020. <laughs> and I think to myself, what plan could God possibly have in the midst of all of this? But I wonder, too, how Mary, Jesus' mother, felt when the angel Gabriel approached her and told her that she was going to conceive the Messiah by the power of the Holy Spirit. How would you explain that? To your fiance. Hey, Joseph, you know that promise that we Jewish people have always believed in that God would send a, a Savior, a Messiah? Yeah. Well, turns out we're going to be the parents. <laughs> yeah, that's really believable, isn't it? <laughs> How do you explain that to your family? And then to make matters worse, in her ninth month of pregnancy, Mary had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem because some Caesar back in Rome had decreed that a census would be taken. Boy, we're doing a census this year too, aren't we? A lot of parallels. <laughs> and so the timing of Mary's pregnancy seems bad. Life is about to become very chaotic. But the amazing thing is that she doesn't, she doesn't complain. See, from God's perspective, the timing was perfect. What does Paul mean by that? What does he mean when he writes, when the fullness of time had come? Now, some people think it refers to the way in which the culture and the world were perfectly prepared for this event. And they'll talk about how the Roman Empire had created the, the Pax Romana, a, a time of relative peace. And, and they would speak of how Latin and, and Greek had become a common language spoken by almost everyone in this part of the world, allowing for greater communication and understanding. And they would mention how easy it would be to travel throughout the empire, for the Romans were, were quite skilled at building bridges and roads and allowed the cities to grow rapidly. And they would talk about how the Romans were, were tolerant of other religions as long as you would also acknowledge that Caesar was the Lord. And all these factors would have greatly enabled the spread of Christianity so that by 300 A.D., one in ten of every citizen of the empire would have called themselves Christian. So all of this is true and points to the plan of God, but I, I think it goes even deeper than that. You see, I think the, exp the expression, the fullness of time, means that when the time was ripe, when, when the time was perfect, God sent forth His Son to be the Savior of the world. You see, throughout history, God had been whispering, God had been promising, God had been suggesting that He would send a Savior. Clear back in, in the Garden of Eden, when, when Adam and Eve first sinned and they fell away from God, they experienced this alienation between God and themselves and, and between each other and then even within themselves. But also in Genesis, in chapter 3, in fact, right after the fall, God promises that He will send a Savior. 
Indeed, there are some 65 direct predictions of Jesus coming in the Old Testament, including that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be born in the city of Bethlehem, that he would ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, that John the Baptist would precede him. In fact, Scripture even predicted his death on the cross, that he would feel forsaken by God, that he would be pierced in the side with a spear, and that he would bear our sins in his body. Indeed, after his resurrection, two of Jesus' disciples meet him on the road to Emmaus. They don't know who he is, but Luke report records this. Luke's gospel records that beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. Same strand of story going throughout from Genesis all the way through. And so Advent reminds us that God, God has a plan, that God is in charge that God has a plan to save us. And I think that's a good reminder to us and even more of the things that we faced in 2020. That when a crisis comes, that when we seem to be losing our way, we can rest in the truth that God is still working out His plan for our lives, for us. God had to remind Israel of that truth during a, a dark time in their history when all was chaos and confusion. God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 29 these words, for surely, for surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare and not for harm to give you a future and a hope. We need a future and a hope. Bill lived in a small house right across uh, from the church where I pastored. And although he was a member, uh, he had not attended in years. Church members didn't know why, but I decided I would try to find out. I tried to call him, but he never replied, never answered. And so one day I knocked on his door, and he came to the door and reluctantly let me in. And we sat there in a dark room, and even though it was a sunny day, all the shades were drawn, and the room smelled like it had been shut up for many years. After getting acquainted, I, I asked him why. Why had he stopped coming to church? And he shared with me the story of the death of his wife Donna from cancer and, and how he had prayed and prayed and how he had sought God's help, but it seemed to him like like God was AWOL. And those months had been a terrible, terrible ordeal. And when she died, it left him feeling abandoned by God. Now, it's always nice to have wise words at moments like that, but I was young and unexperienced and was only able to say a few words and to give him a hug and wish that he would someday be able to return to church. Well, many months later, he did. He came to worship one Sunday morning, and I was, I was so excited. I was trying to keep cool on the outside, but inside I was kind of doing flip-flops. And, and Bill came up, and he sat right in the very front pew, right in front of me. But 
To my dismay, as I was preaching my sermon, I noticed he began to cry, and he, he cried throughout my entire message and through the closing hymn, and then he ran out before I could even greet him. I thought, oh, great, what did I say? <laughs> what dumb thing did I say in my sermon that now he'll probably never come back? But later that week, I went to visit him again. I wasn't even sure if he would answer the door or let me in if he did. But when he came to the door, he had a big smile on his face. He invited me in, and, and I, I was surprised to see that the shades were up. Something big had happened. And I asked him, Bill, what's changed? He said, Pastor, God finally came. And what I've discovered in the last few weeks, that it was my grief and it was my anger that kept God out. I felt so helpless watching Donna grow weaker and weaker, but now I understand that God was there all along. You know, sometimes the world drags us down. Sometimes the, the heavy gravity of this world pulls down our souls, it draws tears from our eyes, and it forces our bodies to bend beneath the weight of our sorrow and our cares. And we experience the pain of crippling memories and heartaches. And in times like that, we need to remember that not only does God have a plan, but God has a supernatural intervention. Paul writes, God sent his Son you see, the incarnation was the means by which God would make our redemption possible. So the message of the gospel is simply this. God sent Jesus to intervene, to rescue us helpless sinners. And while the Jewish nation longed for a Messiah, they did not fully realize what the role of this Messiah would be. And they didn't see themselves as, as helpless sinners. They, they thought they needed a political Messiah, who, one who would come and drive out the, the, the enemies of the Romans and, and would take his place upon David's throne once again. But we get confused like that, don't we? Sometimes we're tempted to think that if we just get the, the right leaders in office and we get rid of our political enemies that the world will be right again. But God's intervention was to care for the problem of sin. Because, you see, sin is at the very heart of the world's problems. And so Jesus Christ suffered, substituted himself in our place. He, he suffered. He died to pay the penalty for our sins because the Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. And in doing that, it changes everything. Death and, and hate and evil doesn't have the last word anymore. That God triumphs over the powers of darkness. That there's always hope. That, that God wins. And, and that's the message of the Bible from, from Genesis all the way to the Revelation. That God saves us helpless sinners. That Christ yielded up his life to God in complete obedience to God's will. Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2 that Christ, Christ became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that it was this utter yielding of himself and full surrender to God's purposes. This is what made it all possible. That it was something that God did just for you and for you and for me. And it may be right now that some of you need a supernatural intervention. 
It may be right now that you're facing huge issues or challenges. And if you do, you need to remember that God can do it, that God can intervene, that God cares about you. But Paul goes on. He says, born of a woman, born under the law. You see, Paul here is referring to Mary. It's simply a way for Paul to say that Jesus was born as a human being. Yes, he was God's son, fully God, but also fully a man. He didn't just look like a man. He was fully human with all the limitations of being human. He was tested. He was tempted. He was tired. He was hungry and, and sad and, and angry, and he cried. Fully human. Our, our council does a, a monthly Bible study at our meetings, and lately we've been studying um, John's first epistle, and the writer was dealing with some false teachers who were misleading the church by saying that Jesus was not human. He just looked human. He, he was only an image. They didn't see how, how deity could possibly ever live in a messed up sinful flesh. But fully God, fully man. And whenever we emphasize one over the other, we get ourselves into trouble. But the writer of Hebrews would take this, this incredible truth and, and he would use it to encourage us. He would write, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He then says this, Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so if Jesus was human, and if he was tempted, then we can go to him in our difficult times and find help. Now Paul closes with the reason why God has done all of this. He writes, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, what does that mean, under the law? It meant that Jesus was born into a Jewish family and, like all Jews, was under the obligations of following the rules and the obligations of Judaism. The problem was that following the law only served to point out the problem that we are all sinners. It could not provide the way out of our slavery to our sinful habits and addictions. This was a problem in the church of Galatia. You see, through Paul's preaching, many Gentiles had come to faith in Christ and several churches in the area established. And after they were firmly in place, Paul left to continue his missionary journeys. But something happened after he left that caused him grave concern. Some evangelists had come to these churches and taught what Paul called a different gospel. They were teaching that Gentile Christians had to follow what Paul called the works of the law. You see, they were teaching that it wasn't enough to have faith in Jesus. You also had to follow all the rules and, and regulations that were found in the Old Testament. And the Christians in Galatia were very much attracted to this teaching. Paul writes, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are now turning to a different gospel. And it's not just a minor conflict. Paul says, if anyone proclaims to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, let that one be accursed. Man, pretty strong words. But here's why. Paul knew the Mosaic law had done nothing but made it clear how far we have fallen from God's will for our life. 
I mean, how many of us here today have never broken one of the Ten Commandments? Anybody here kept all ten of them your entire life? Just raise your hands if... <laughs> Not a one of us, huh? Me neither. You see, we can't do it. We can't live up to God's high standard. You see, Paul is saying that Christ's coming has freed us from enslavement to all those rules and regulations. He says grace is now what governs our relationship with God. And he doesn't know why they want to go back to that old way of life. Now the idea of rules and regulations for Christian living has been and is a persistent problem for the church. In fact, almost any time that you talk about grace, you will be misunderstood as the Apostle Paul knew all too well. You see, the heart of his preaching was this, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. That grace has both set us free from the bondage of sin and also from the impossible demands of the Old Testament law so that we can live free to spontaneously serve the Lord by His Spirit. The trouble is, by our nature, we like rules and regulations over grace. And there's a couple reasons why. Number one, because it's a perverted way of making believe that God loves me more. We think to ourselves, you know, if I don't do this, then, then God will love me more. Or, or if I don't do that, then God will love me more. But you see, this kind of thinking is rigid and it's grim and it's exacting and it's law-like in nature. And pride, which is the very heart of our legalism, works in sync with other motivating factors like shame and guilt. And it's always focused on the negative, on what you should not do. And in fact, it's become so prevalent that most of your non-Christian neighbors think that Christianity is simply a list of do's and don'ts and they want nothing to do with it. But there's another reason. It's because it's a way for us to earn our salvation. It provides this external way of determining who the saved are and it can be measured, and it can be monitored, and it can be enforced, and it's very tidy. And we like that. But God was doing a brand new thing. God sent His Son into the world to redeem those under the law. Jesus has purchased our freedom from our slavery to sin. Paul writes, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so Jesus came to live our life and to die the death that we deserved so we can be redeemed. And he would set us free from our imprisonment to the law and to make us sons and daughters of God. We move from being slaves to sin to children of God. And Paul says that when that happens, when we receive uh, the gift of God's Holy Spirit into our hearts, that we can now call God Abba, Father. Abba, the most intimate word for our relationship between a parent and a child. Folks, think about how different our world would be if Jesus had never come. Think how different our world would be if Jesus had never come as a baby to live in a manger. How different would the world be if he had not come to die on a cross and to rise again. How different your life would be if Christ had not come to you and forgiven your sin and redeemed your life. 
the truth is we have a God who does come, who came in the fullness of time as a man to redeem us by dying for us. And the Bible teaches that when the fullness of time comes again, that he will return and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. This is our promise. Our future is secure. Our redemption has been paid for. We simply bow in our emptiness, in our humility, in our meekness, and in our weakness. And we surrender it all to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have a plan and that your timing is perfect. And how you sent Jesus at just the right moment in time and that now you are working to bring all to fulfillment. God, we want to be a part of that. And so we surrender our wills to yours. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you.